Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Gary Leland, conference organizer, boomer, and Bitcoiner. We talk about the many businesses he's done, how he got into them, and how he's found different opportunities that have made him a lot of money. Gary also tells us about the opportunities he sees in Bitcoin, how to do what you're passionate about, and the other things he's learned along the way. Gary Leland, how's everything going? Jimmy, it's going great. This has been uh, it's an exciting day, kind of. I mean, you know, I woke up this morning and Bitcoin was up and I was awake and I had a great week in Florida. So things are going great. <laughs> so are you traveling at the moment? Where are you in the well, world right I'm now? I'm home. I got back yesterday. I've been traveling a lot, actually. I was in, where do we go? Out to Atlanta. Next week, I'm in Miami. I mean, I mean, it seems like every damn week I'm going somewhere lately. Hmm. Well, that's kind of what you wanted, isn't it? Like yeah, you, yes, you've exactly. Been to. <laughs> it's exactly what I wanted. So I'm not complaining. I'm just seeing it's a lot. You know, I told my wife last, maybe last year, a year before, maybe it was last year. I can't remember. I said, I'm going to travel probably more this one year than I have ever in my entire life. And then COVID hit. And, mm. I, and I traveled the less I ever traveled. So now I'm really, I guess, catching up on it, you know, and making up <laughs> for lost time. <laughs> That's awesome. So you, you've been wanting to travel. You haven't been able to. Now you're making up for lost time. What sort of uh, you know things did you want to do that you didn't get to do? Well, I wanted to hit a lot of Bitcoin events this year mm. and last mm. year. I mean, yeah, I travel anyway. I haven't mm. been able to travel in Europe in a while, which I, I really miss. But I wanted to start hitting a lot of Bitcoin events and make not only, I guess you could say doing business, you know, since mm. now that's all I do is things around Bitcoin, but business and pleasure and combine to both. Because <laughs> uh, I like traveling and I like Bitcoiners, talking with Bitcoiners. So it's kind of like a, a perfect match there, really. Travel and talk to Bitcoiners. I mean, to me, it's I really enjoy it. Mm, okay. Well, so I brought you on the show because I think you've been around a while and done a whole bunch of different things. And uh, like every time I find out that you've done something new, I'm like, what? You did what? <laughs> so can you just sort of explain to my audience, like, what you have done and, you know, I mean, you're older now. I think you call yourself the Bitcoin boomer. Can you tell us a little bit about your career before Bitcoin a little bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm the Bitcoin boomer because I'm a boomer. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been around a while. I, uh, my first business, real business, was uh, that I'd say in my adult life was uh, in the uh, mini blind business. You probably don't even know this. I started going, my wife and I started going door to door back in 1979 or 1980 in new neighborhoods. You know, when new people, move, when people move in homes and they're full of new neighbor uh, houses, a brand new neighborhood, they move in a house, they have nothing on their windows, they have no blinds mm -hmm. or draperies, so they would hang sheets on their windows. And we'd mm -hmm. go door to door, actually, knocking on doors going, hey, we're the mini blind people, you need some blinds? And they would be excited and they'd buy from us. And uh, we, we did that for several years and turned that into an interior decorating business, uh, Leland's wallpaper and interiors. We, I think we may have been, I'm not going to guarantee this, but we may have been the first e-commerce site on the internet. Well, of course, e-commerce site be on the internet. That's kind of stupid. Uh -huh. we, we were actually though, probably the first e-commerce site to sell wallpaper back in, I tried to do it in 85, but I couldn't figure out the shopping cart. I couldn't get that built. So we, we mm. or 95, I mean, so we finally got it going in 96. Hmm. And we had a brick and mortar store and we did that for till 
this July. We just sold it this July. So we did it a long time. Hmm. Then in 2000, I created, which I know this was the first women's fast pitch softball site. <laughs> uh, selling f- girls fast pitch softball equipment. And that really blew up really big because girls fast pitch softball was growing and mm. no one else was doing it. So within a year, we were like the place to do it. And using uh, just a lot of marketing ideas I, I came up with, I, I was the first person to have, I know this sounds stupid to think you could be the first person to do this, but I was actually the first person to market pink softball equipment to girls. <laughs> I think it was all men marketing this stuff before, and they just marketed what they knew. And I said, hey, I think girls would like pink stuff. So mm-hmm. I started having manufacturers custom make for me, like Louisville Slugger would custom make pink backpacks for me. Mizuno Gloves mm-hmm. would custom make pink gloves for me. And when you're the only person in the world selling it, you mm-hmm. can make a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but then all of a sudden, all these manufacturers I was buying the equipment from saw how much I was ordering, and they mm-hmm. started making it. You know, mm. and selling it to other stores. So that uh, pink thing died down. But I did that till this year. And actually, this year, we sold the store, wallpaper store, and I basically gave away the sporting goods store. I had a closing out sale for a month. I had so much stuff left over. I called the Arlington, Mission Arlington, and they came by with a semi truck. And they mm. couldn't get it all in there, actually. They even left stuff, which I just finally wa- I just walked away from. So mm. uh, I wanted to get out of that business. And so I, I'm out of it. No one was interested in buying it. So I just gave it away to charity, basically. But I did mm. that in 2004. And this takes me a while when I go through this, you realize, Jimmy. So you asked for it. So 2004, I started podcasting. I was probably mm. one of the first 100 podcasters on the planet in the Podcast Hall of Fame. By 2006, mm-hmm. I was in my podcast website was in Time Magazine. is one of their 50 coolest websites in the world, which sounds great. But I must not be real smart because... You know, in my category, you know, I had YouTube, I had Facebook, I had Photo Bucket, all these billion-dollar companies. I'm the only one that didn't become a billion-dollar company, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not too bright. But I'm still in the podcasting. I had the, I ended up building the, or being one of the four founders with my other three partners of podcast movement. It became the world's largest podcasting conference, which the year before COVID hit, I think we had 3,500 people at our event in. Orlando or yeah, in Orlando. And then I sold that. I sold my share of that. And then I guess what in two th- early 2017, I discovered Bitcoin and mm. uh, that started consuming all my time. Really. That's why I got out of my other businesses is I wanted to spend more time in Bitcoin. And now I, my wife and I both, like I said, we got rid of everything. All I do since uh, July 1st is Bitcoin related stuff. I just find it, you know, the thing that I don't, and I said this at Bitlock Boom uh, this year. I don't know if you were in the room, but mm-hmm. I think right now a lot of people see an opportunity in Bitcoin to invest. You know, maybe buy something that we all believe is going to go up. But I think there are so many opportunities in Bitcoins to have Bitcoin-related businesses and to find your niche in doing things with Bitcoin that people are missing the boat on that opportunity. I think it's the same opportunities we had in 96, 97, 98, building e-commerce sites. You know, it was something brand new uh, mm. that you could do and get a whole new line of business. And I think you can do the same thing by getting involved in Bitcoin with your business and supporting uh, Bitcoin-related companies or, or, or being a Bitcoin-related company. I think there's a lot of opportunity here besides the financial gain. Mm. Well, I, these are all very interesting because you obviously have a lot of experience sort of like exploiting market opportunities as they come. And this is something that I think a lot of people aren't used to. 
what was it about each of these businesses that allowed you to see that there was a market for it? And were there any sort of like failures along the way that we should know about? I've had failures, but I don't think any of them have been big failures because I pretty much self-fund everything, you know, mm-hmm. build it from the ground up and do most of the work myself and um, put my time in it more than anything else. So there's been no failures that have cost me any money per se, just mostly my time. So mm-hmm. as far as that goes, I don't think it is. But, you know, they all had different things. You know, we actually, my wife saw a friend talking about uh, mini blinds back then when we got in the mini blind business. And she actually went and bought the $35 worth of stuff, which we turned into a multi-million dollar company within a few years. But it was mm-hmm. just, uh, we were sitting around weekends and we liked to work. So we go out knocking on doors. I grew up as a door-to-door salesman. So there wasn't anything really technical there in podcasting. I really kind of saw podcasting right away. Uh, mm-hmm. And I saw e-commerce right away. It's funny, almost everything I've been successful at, including, mm-hmm. I'm going to say I'm successful at Bitcoin. Since mm-hmm. I'm running a successful conference, I'm a, it may sound weird to say successful at it, but I'm putting it in those terms. Not, I'm not saying successful at investing because mm-hmm. anyone who hodls is going to be successful at investing. But all my businesses, including Bitcoin, that I've done, I've been told multiple, multiple times when I started them that they were stupid ideas or scams <laughs> or they wouldn't work. I mean, everybody said, why would you do blinds? All the stores will sell them someday, which they did, but... I was one of the stores selling them, and uh, mm-hmm. then we built a website. Mm-hmm. When I started softball, I heard the same thing. When I got into podcasting, I told that was stupid. People would just listen on the radio. Really, when I started the e-commerce site for wallpaper, I was really told I was stupid. Even the manufacturers wouldn't help me out by sharing photos in their books because they said it's stupid. No one to buy wallpaper on the internet. So I was having to cut up books and scan pictures of the stuff <laughs> to put it online. And the same thing when I got into Bitcoin, everybody said, that's a scam. You're going to lose all your money. I remember my best friend said, Gary, you need to get out of this. Everybody I know that spent any money on Bitcoin has lost all their money. I said, I don't understand how that happened since it's the highest it's been right now. How did they lose all their money? You know, because when I bought it, it was at a high. I'm going, this is the highest it's ever been. How did they lose all their money? Well, they sold it. You know, that's how they lost mm-hmm. all their money. So, but I think that's the main thing that people need to be aware of. If you do have a good idea. You cannot sit back and go, wow, Joe's telling me this is a stupid idea. Frank's telling me this is a stupid idea. You got to really make that call on your own because I don't think I've ever done anything that everybody said. I mean, realistically, Jimmy, I don't think I've done one thing that all my peer group or people I really hang out with have said, that's a great idea. You're really going <laughs> to do good on that. That is such a good, I mean, it's never happened. Why mm. would people listen to the radio? No one's going to listen to podcasts. You know, one thing after another. Hmm. Well, that is really interesting because you do kind of have doubters and people that, you know, mean well, but are telling you sort of like, hey, that's not a good idea. How do you distinguish that from, say, the people that are giving you good advice? Because sometimes there are people that actually know. How do you like, you know, I'm, I'm sure there have been things where, you know, you got advice from somebody and it was good advice and you were prevented from doing something stupid. But how do you distinguish those two? Because that, that's, I think, big part of figuring out these opportunities. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. And I don't know if I even have the answer for that. I've just always mm-hmm. gone with my gut feeling. Mm-hmm. I've always, you know, I think everybody has a superpower. Hmm. I really do. And that sounds stupid, but I think everybody has one. And there may be even someone else who says this. I don't know, but it seems common sense to me. The problem is most people don't know what their superpower is. Hmm. So since they never found it out, they weren't able to take advantage of it. And I really always thought my superpower, this is going to sound really stupid, 
but I don't have a great superpower maybe, but Mm -hmm. I think my superpower is I can see things like the common Joe sees things. Mm -hmm. You know, people tell me who work for me or coders and they'll say things to say, that's stupid as hell. And I'll go with them. So I really kind of think my ability to see things in a plain view Mm -hmm. has been what has caused me to be successful is how I look at things. Not, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I look at things in a great way and I'm not saying I'm real smart. I just see things in a plain simplified version. So for me, the ones that people have like, for Mm -hmm. instance, you asked me about a failure earlier. I had one that uh, someone had uh, had an idea and everybody liked this idea. So I did it and it was a failure. I had my website was softball junk, softballjunk.com. That was my website. And then, then I made baseballjunk.com because really a lot of the equipment back then was the same. Mm. I mean, they used the same socks. They didn't even have girls' gloves really yet. So they girls used men's baseball gloves or youth baseball gloves. So all I had to really do is buy new bats, you know, mm. and men's shoes. And, and we had a baseball website. So I built baseballjunk.com and that did good. Not as good as softball because baseball equipment, there were tons of baseball websites. But I had all the equipment. And we had built a database console, basically, that well, I'll get to that in a second. So after that, people started saying, you know, you should do the same thing for soccer and volleyball in this. So I built like soccerjunk.com, volleyballjunk.com, kickballjunk.com, you name it. I had a website for it and we made a, a database for it that we could just say add socks, add a description and mm-hmm. click the websites we wanted it to appear on. And it would auto-populate all the websites. You know, maybe this sock went on eight websites and it would auto-populate them. And we really didn't do that good with that. Number one, we didn't know anything about soccer, volleyball, basketball, or I didn't. So I wasn't able to really work that properly or market it properly or help people properly because I had no idea, you know, what a six foot four guy needed uh, that a six foot one guy might need or whatever. So, and then Google came out with a duplicate problem for duplicate content. And all my websites had duplicate content. I mean, mm. it was just, so we got penalized and the whole thing was destroyed. We had to go back and rebuild softball and baseball chunk, adding new content that was just on those pages. So sometimes you can get advice from people you trust, and it's not necessarily good advice. Mm. So I know I didn't answer your question. I just told you a situation <laughs> I had. Mm-hmm. Well, I but it is interesting, though, because... In a sense, when you started like the mini blind business, you you saw the opportunity and you saw it sort of like you were able to empathize with your customer and see from their perspective what they would want. And you were able to sort of like place yourself in that position and recognize, okay, I would buy this. In in that position, you're exactly Mm -hmm. right. They Mm -hmm. didn't have, and I'm going to bring this around. They didn't, they couldn't even buy mini blinds at Home Depot yet. Mm. You know, so, and then, as I said, you had people moving in brand new houses back then. The housing market here in Dallas was just huge. You just drive through a neighborhood and there were 50 houses that had sheets on their windows. So you had mm. a, you had a target too. And mm-hmm. even if they had them ordered, they mm. were happy to see you because they knew you were providing a service that it was obvious they needed. And mm. when you sold them the product, they were like, so thankful. Thank you for mm. coming by here. I can't believe you came by. We needed this so bad. We didn't know where to go. And they were mm. so thankful. So you were creating, filling a need and mm. making money at the same time, which is the best thing of all, you know, and it was a good product. It's something they needed. They didn't want sheet on, a pink sheet here and a white one here and a blue one here on the front of their house. They just moved in their house and they were proud of it. They wanted it to look good. So mm. I, I think that's been another thing is seeing stuff early like that or seeing what people need. I'm mm. like my friends who said podcasting stupid. You got a radio. Why would you listen to a podcast? <laughs> mm. 
Okay, well, so let's go into the other one because the wallpaper on the internet business, it seems like something that would require a lot of technical skill and things like that. How did you figure out that that was something that the average Joe would actually go and get? Like, what was your sort of thought process to getting into that business? I don't think it was really complicated. I think I just saw a market opportunity on the internet and on the web, and no one was really filling that opportunity that I could find. Most of my competitors were screensavers or backgrounds. You know, when you Mm -hmm. search wallpaper, that's what came up was a picture of somebody for your computer background. Actually, I guess, I guess soon as I had access to the the net, I was like amazed by it. Hmm. And uh, I remember my wife getting upset because I spent too much time on the computer just surfing the net and not spending enough time with her, I guess. So Hmm. to me, I just fell in love with the whole idea of being able to go from, you know, not seeing anything to seeing the whole world. And, you know, people were so helpful back then too, Jimmy. If I, if I thought there were people, I would get emails like once a week from someone just telling me if I misspelled a word Mm-hmm. Or something that people took their time out to like help you out and say, hey, you misspelled this or, you know, this image is not coming up right or something like mm-hmm. that. But, you know, it wasn't anything. Yeah, I don't think anything I've done has been anything fantastic. I'm just pretty much a hard worker and I don't mm-hmm. mind putting in the hours. I think even if you have a bad idea, if you put in the hours, it's probably going to gonna work. It may not be as successful. But I think a lot of people don't want to put in the hours at the time and they're looking for I think it's the difference between it's just like people who buy Bitcoin and buy Shiba, Uno, whatever mm-hmm, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, some people don't mind putting in the time; they know it's going to work. They'll they'll ride up. They'll just hot a Bitcoin. Some people, you know, two hundred percent gains aren't enough for them a year. They got to try to get a billion dollar gain or something. Mm. So I don't know if that's a very good comparison or something, but I think people <laughs> just don't want to put in the time. Mm. Well, I mean, there's the sense that they want to get something for nothing, and what you're saying is. You're going to kind of get an output that's commensurate with the amount of time and effort you put in. Yeah, exa- exactly. It's uh, proof of work. If you mm-hmm. work, you're going to be compensated usually. And if you work for yourself, which a lot of people don't understand, it's a lot harder working for yourself than people think because mm-hmm. you're never off. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. if you go home at five and you go, well, I'm through for the day. Let's go party. You're at home and you're still thinking about your problems or something you got to do or trying mm-hmm. to figure out. To. And I, I'm sure some people did that in their job working for someone else. But when you work for yourself, Mm. you always are doing that. Mm. I mean, you're never off, you know, you don't have anything to do. You pull your computer out and start working. I mean, you Mm. know, on stuff that normally some say, I'm not being paid while I'm at home. I'm not working on that, Mm. you know? So yeah, working hard is, and I think people have a hard time with that working hard enough for themselves because it is, I think, harder than working for someone else. Mm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people have a harder time working for themselves than for other people in a sense? Because I think that number one, maybe they didn't have good work ethics before, Mm -hmm. but number two, maybe they have this feeling that they can be off whenever they want to be off. They're the boss. I don't have to work on this now at eight o'clock in the evening. I can put it off till tomorrow. There's no one to make me do it tomorrow. Um, There's Mm -hmm. no one to tell me, Hey, you got, you can't go out tonight and go partying with your friends. You got to stay home and take care of this problem. You know, mm-hmm. so that that would be my guess. I don't know. I just, I don't know the cause of mm-hmm. things, but I know that I feel that happens. I don't, I won't say I know, but I feel that happens to a lot of people. I think that's why the average company goes out of business in five years. You mm-hmm. know, it's because people don't put in the time. It's not because they don't know what they're doing or they don't know the, the product or they don't know this or that or because they're stupid. It's just, they're not putting in the time or they're not researching it enough after they get it going and finding the problem and fixing it. But we all know, I mean, or we've, I've heard my whole life, the average company goes out of business in five years. 
Mm. You know, so I kind of like, I kind of feel that's been said so long, it must be true. (laughs) So you have like several businesses that were, that lasted well beyond that and you've made a lot of money. So you've already mentioned that one of the keys is sort of working hard, but what about like, sort of like, you know, some of these things seem kind of like almost random, right? Like you, you did mini blinds, I guess wallpapers kind of related and maybe you saw marketer. Actually, on that, I told you how easy it was to get in the mini blind business. You could buy mm-hmm. for $35 and go door to door and get into it. And mm-hmm. uh, I had maybe six or seven people in Dallas, Fort Worth that were doing that. They all had their own territories. And they'd mm-hmm. go door to door and uh, get to the point I wasn't going door to door any longer. I had all these people and I was training them and setting up installations. I had installers doing all of this. And we probably sold more mini blinds in the state of Texas than anyone back in 90s, mid 80s. But all of a sudden, we had added wallpaper, but as a sideline, you know, because some mm-hmm. people were coming to the store. Most of our stuff was door to door, but some people would come into the brick and mortar store and buy, buy their blinds and they might see some wallpaper and buy it. So it was an added product, an extra product just to make more revenue. But then I can't remember the exact year. I'm going to say mid 80s, just as, as time. A bunch of my people who worked for me all got together and left. And started competing mm-hmm. against me. So they only had to spend a small amount of money. They'd been trained. They were real good at it. And they all started competing against me. And that was a real hard year for me because my uh, sales base dropped to, you know, by 75% because uh, it was all my key people that left. Mm-hmm. And so I, I told my wife, I said, this is never going to happen to us again. This mm-hmm. cannot happen. We were in a business that was too easy to get into. See, mm-hmm. if your business is too easy to get into, and it's a sales business, you're probably going to train your competitors and they're going to take your customers with them because they're mm. going to go, hey, I'm starting my own business. Uh, I'll give you 10% left if you buy from me because they don't. I'm not getting any cut of it. So they're still making more. The company's getting a better price and that's mm. the way it works. So that's when we started building out the wallpaper business and uh, a wallpaper store went out of business and I went to the landlord and said, hey, I'll take over the lease if you give me the contents. He said, mm. sure, I'm going to, I have to haul that stuff out of there. You're, that sounds like a great deal. So uh, we got in, that's when we got into the wallpaper real big was because of some negative things that happened, which is a failure. I guess I didn't think of it as a failure because it ended up as a positive. So, but that's how we got into the wallpaper business because of, we were kind of in that business. We were in the decorating business, but the, the blind business was too easy to get into. And I had trained all my competitors. And actually, I think three of them to this day are still selling mini blinds door to door, which I mm-hmm. really don't know how you do that nowadays. society. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I really don't know who's letting you in with COVID to sell many parts door to door. So I don't know. Maybe they figured out how to do it on Zoom. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's the scoop. There, so it wasn't any. That wasn't doing wallpaper or evolving the wallpaper wasn't any great thing that I did because I wanted to evolve. It's because I had to evolve. Mm. Well, but then you know, you did get the idea to sell it on the internet, which was in a, itself like sort of an innovation. Like, what led you to believe that that would work? I think it's just my thing that I, I feel like if, I feel like if I like something that there's enough other people to do. Mm. And really, when you get down to it, I'm kind of in the marketing, I guess. You know, mm. I'm, I've not had any formal training in that, but that's what I like to do is come up with. Like we had talked earlier, or, or, but down at Beefsteak, mm. you know, I was talking to you and I told you I've written like 19 books. <laughs> you know, and you're like 19 books. <laughs> How do you write 19 books? But uh, that was part of my marketing, you know, was writing mm. books. 
and people would buy the books, which is great. I made money off the books, but the books were filled with my content and my ads for my online business and discount coupons and things like that. So the books were really a, a marketing ploy, you know, and we had the fast pitch TV show, you know, which mm-hmm. was sponsored by softballjunk.com, my store. So mm-hmm. I've been pretty good, I think, more at trying to figure out ways to market something than I am coming up with these just really great ideas. I don't think it was a great idea getting on the internet. For wallpaper mm-hmm. store, everything got on the internet. So, I mean, everybody had the idea. Maybe I just saw it as a, a branch. You know, I've always done what I call, this may sound stupid again, this is something, I call my marketing method wagon wheel marketing. <laughs> um, Explain wagon wheel marketing. Okay. Let's let's hear this. Now, your softball junk, we're going to say, was my primary company. Mm. That's the hub of your wagon wheel. Mm. That's the hub right in the center there is softballjunk.com. Then you have all these spokes you know, coming out from softball junk. And at the end of all these spokes going around in the shape of a wheel are other things that you produce just to get people to the hub. You know, like the mm. fast pitch TV show, which people subscribe to and they advertised on. Some people did. We sold some sponsorships. So really, it was pointing to softball junk, my books, which people bought and they paid for. But really, in all reality, it was pointing to the hub. So mm. I built things that were could make a profit. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily great profitable items, but they they did pay for themselves. But they were really pointing people to the hub in the min- middle of the wheel. So that's why I call mm-hmm. it wagon wheel marketing. And I'm real big on car lot marketing, which podcasters are big on, but not interior decorating companies. Wait, 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 wait. Car lot marketing? <laughs> Can you explain what that is, too? Well, guess what I call it? There's probably another name for it, but I just mm-hmm. call it. Have you ever seen a car lot really ever by themselves? No, they're always no. a street full of car lots. Mm-hmm. You know, whether they're new car lots on Interstate 20 down here, where we have Mercedes and Hyundai and all these new car lots. Or whether it's in a dumpy side of town and they're all used car lots, you know, mm-hmm. where you get it for 50 bucks a week. Wherever it's at, car lots never go by themselves. So mm-hmm. I'm really big on trying to build relationships with other companies. And we all feel that we can, like, make more money if we all work together. I'm not talking about price fixing or anything, you know. Mm-hmm. That's why I probably don't work in, in the mini blind market because they're also competitive price-wise. And if you all fix the price, you probably go to jail or something. Mm-hmm. For, but, you know, and things like podcasters. You know, they mm-hmm. all get together and they work together and market them. Book writers, they all get together. So I like car lot marketing. I like working. I don't feel I have competitors. I mm-hmm. never have. I've never cared what my competitors do. I know some people who, a guy who started a paint store, and he, at, in the evening on the way home, he'd stop by another paint store and look in the window to see what they were doing so that he could, uh, if they had a great idea, he could do it. But I've always been scared to have a stupid idea. And I'll copy <laughs> that. And then... <laughs> And then I'll go out of business like they all do. Because, I mean, for years, every time some big giant thing comes in for decorating, people go, are you scared? Because Walmart's there or Joe's decorating is there. And I go, no, not really. I don't pay much attention to other people. I just keep my head down and keep into what I'm doing. So Mm. I don't know if that's good or bad. But like I said, I've I've really never had a business go out of business, you Mm. know, that was a main business. So it's worked for me. Mm. Well, so let's talk about your fast pitch softball thing, because I know you've written a lot of books and stuff, and we talked about all of that marketing, but how'd you even get into that business? Because it seems so far away from mini blinds and wallpaper. What happened there? Well, I had two daughters that played softball, and actually, they, my oldest daughter, my youngest daughter liked it, but my oldest daughter really had a passion for it, 
Mm-hmm. And so she was always the youngest kid on the team. So she never got to play. So <laughs> to fix that, I started a team mm. and put my daughter at the position she wanted to play and built a team around her. And if people said, hey, I want to be the shortstop, I said, well, you can't. If you're going to be on this team, <laughs> my daughter's going to be shortstop. That's why I'm doing all this work, you know, at mm-hmm. night coaching these teams and stuff like that. And uh, we became very successful. We won a state championship, well, two state championships. And then we were favored in, I don't know, the year 89 or something to win a World Series. And we went and we lost the first game and had to play mm-hmm. loser's bracket all day. So we were playing seven games a day and 100-something degree heat and made it to the final day. But we didn't have enough gas to play in seven games a day. And I think we got third place. But we were a good team. Mm-hmm. And when you're a good team – at sports, at or at select sports, I'd say, mm-hmm. other people want to get involved with you. They want their daughter involved with you or their team involved with you. Next thing I knew, mm-hmm. we had like five teams under our brand, which mm-hmm. was the bomb softball. So I thought, you know, most of my parents can't afford really nice equipment. Really, this is how it started. They can't afford nice equipment. I'll make a website for faster softball equipment, and I'll be able to buy stuff wholesale. Mm-hmm. And we can put orders together. And everybody can pitch in and buy whatever they want to, and I'll order it. I thought it was a great way because in softball, for some reason, I think you have a lot of single moms in softball, but that's another story. So I did this, and I figured if I'm making a website at night, I might as well make it work. So I made a real website, and I even used a shopping cart for Leland's Wallpaper. Mm-hmm. So if they did buy something, they checked out. <laughs> they went to Leland's Wallpaper shopping cart. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Leland's Wallpaper at the top. Because I really didn't think it was going to get a lot of business, but I wanted to make it kind of legit. And I called people who had made stuff in their garage. You know, they made mm-hmm. maybe this training aid, this kind of batting tee or this mm-hmm. this or that. And that was all I had on there. I was mm-hmm. stuff like that. And no one would sell to me otherwise. So I did this and started contacting manufacturers. And they still wouldn't sell to me, but they gave me the name of distributors back then. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the internet put most distributors out of business like that, but they were still distributors. And I got maybe 30% off. So I started adding these things to the site at night. So I got, I got hooked on working on the site. And one day I looked and I had like four or five high school kids that worked for me in a wallpaper store, you know, working mm-hmm. on the wallpaper site. So one day I looked and we did one month. I looked and I said, oh my gosh, we did $5,000 worth of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, everybody quit working on the wallpaper site. We're just going to work on this softball website. So, and this is kind of crazy because the next month, this is like back in the eighties. Next month we did 10. Wait, wait, 80, 80s didn't have like. No, nineties, nineties, nineties. Okay. 90s, okay. 90s, okay. 90s, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we started in 96. So mm-hmm. no, we started in 2000. Let me think about it. Wallpaper was 96. This store was 2000. So next thing we looked at, uh, we did like 5,000 that month. I noticed that next month's 10, next month, 20, next month, 40. I mean, it was multiplying like this and it kept going. And then, People would call me on the phone because we had a phone number back then. We even had a mailing address for sending checks to. And <laughs> we'd have people come in the mailing address for, for the wallpaper store because we did it out of the back of the wallpaper store. And you see this big guy come in, walking around the wallpaper store going, is there a softball store around here? <laughs> you guys so you could pick them out when they came in. Why in the hell are they in a wallpaper store with no wife? Uh-huh. So they started buying stuff. And, and we were just going to drop ship everything. Mm-hmm. So we had a warehouse in the back. But so many people were coming. Next thing we knew, we were doing like 30000 a month out of the warehouse. So we took everything out of the boxes and made that a store. So mm-hmm. we had all, all of that going on too. So it wasn't meant to do any business. It was mm-hmm. actually just meant to be like a fake store so suppliers would sell us cheaper. But what <laughs> happened, because there wasn't one and we were the only one doing it, 
like overnight, basically within a year, we were the place. I mean, I, this was kind of crazy. People would call every day and I'd pick up the phone and go, I just want to let you know, this is the best store I've ever seen in my entire life on the web. This is like the greatest <laughs> thing ever. I'm telling all my friends about this. I'm going to share this everywhere I can. We were getting calls, like 10 calls a day like that. Wow. Um, but but it was because no one else was doing it and there was a need. But I didn't even know I was building the first site for Girls Fast Fish Softball equipment. <laughs> I had no idea until after business started doing so well and all these people started calling. Then I realized they either bought from baseball websites or men's slow-pitch softball websites. So mm. they were stick and ball sport websites. They just weren't catering to mm. girls fast pitch, you know, mm. most of the day. and girls fast pitch was kind of newer then because a lot of girls played slow pitch in high school. So mm. it was a new market kind of, I guess. Mm. Mm. So, so it wasn't rocket science. It was pure luck. I've been lucky. Well, a lot you, life. <laughs> well it, it sounds like you kind of got into it and you almost like fell into this one. And I love stories like that because it shows just how like sort of like pursuing something that you thought is a good idea and just sort of like taking little mini baby steps into a full grown business that's serving a product market fit, which is completely done ass backwards by a lot of VCs and so on. They're like, oh, well, now you got to go find part product market fit. Now that you have all these users, it's it's instead you just sort of found it almost accidentally. And those, at least for me, seem like much better businesses. Actually, I would say we found the, the wallpaper, I mean, the uh, mini blinds and the whole decorating by accident. Like I said, my wife was mm -hmm. a school teacher and she saw <laughs> another school teacher that had a mini blind deck. She worked for some mini blind company. She said, what you doing? And uh -huh. she told her about it. She goes, well, I want to do that. Where do I go? She goes, well, we buy our blinds <laughs> from Joe Blow down the street. So my wife went over there and spent $35 on samples. You know, and, uh, it eventually turned into, like I said, a million-dollar business. You know? mm. Well, that is really like sort of gives you this the sense that if you are looking for opportunities or if you're sort of like – sensitive to the business opportunities that exist just in the world around you, you can you can start businesses without, or I mean, by putting in a lot of work and time, obviously, but there are opportunities that are just sort of out there. Yeah, I don't think you necessarily have to have, I guess maybe it's dependent on the business, but I think there are a ton of opportunities out there. I see them every day. I see every day this guy who comes in and cuts my lawn. He has my entire street. Mm. And he has a crew comes by. He started when he started doing this, like we moved in here in like 2001. So it's been 20 years now. When he mm. first started, I was out there cutting my grass. He goes, hey, I'll cut your grass for $28 a week. I said, I said done. Uh -huh. I gave, and I gave my lawnmower away like a week later. I mean, you know, mm. <laughs> and uh, now he comes down my street and he has, it's really kind of amazing what he's done. They start on one side of the street, the uh, weed eater guys. Mm -hmm. They go through first, just walking down the street in every yard. And coming mm -hmm. back down the street, there's about 25 houses on my particular street. I don't know how many of this in the neighborhood, but he's followed, they're followed by the lawnmower crew. And these uh -huh. two guys come with lawnmowers and they start cutting the grass, working their way down the street, following, of course, they're behind the weed eater guys because they move much faster, I guess. And then following mm -hmm. those are a couple guys with these backpacks with air blowers on them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and they hit this whole street at one time. That guy, I remember when, when he had two or three houses on the street. But it's mm. an opportunity he made into a nice business. You know, mm. I really am amazed every time I see them come through here because they're like <laughs> so good at it. And there's, it's not some big company. It's mm. these guys. He, he, he just does it. I mean, you know, he's not like he doesn't have fancy trucks and uniforms and stuff. He just got a bunch of people to work for him. I mean, he does a good job. I like I like the job. I like, I'm really like seeing what he's done.
I mean, anyone can do a good job cutting my grass. I mean, that's not a big issue. But he's done such a good job of growing that business instead of sitting back and going, okay, I can only handle 10 yards in a day. You know, mm-hmm. I'll wait till tomorrow and I can do 10 more. He's figured out how to turn that maybe into 50 yards in a day, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, employing other people at the same time. I just think it's kind of cool. I think there are mm-hmm. a lot of opportunities. Some are manual labor, which nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. My dad was a, a, a welder for his whole life. I grew up in a very manual labor family and my brothers mm-hmm. did too. So I don't have any problem with, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. So I, I want to make sure, but I think there's so many opportunities. Some people don't look at manual labor as a good way to do job. It's a good way to work and make a business. You know, they mm-hmm. think you just got to use your brains, but even if you're using the brains, you got to do the work, which is labor, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that is interesting because there are opportunities all over the place. It's just people seem like really blind to them in many ways. Let's talk about your podcasting thing, because as you said, you were one of the first. How did you fall into that one? And what was the opportunity that you saw? Well, it was it was my wagon wheel marketing. Okay. You know, I saw this clip. There's a new thing getting ready to come or starting called podcasting. Don't know much about it. Uh, it was a newsletter I read, and it said, really, I think it says the new thing out called podcasting. Don't know much about it, but it uh, could be an op- good opportunity for marketing. And mm-hmm. so I said, well, we need to get into this podcasting, whatever in the hell it is. And mm-hmm. uh, so I started researching it, and within a week, I was doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. And within a month, I had a podcast directory. I had, uh, let's see, I, didn't know, I had uh, a site called Podcast Pickle back in, yeah, I don't even happened back in 2004 i think maybe i started it Mm -hmm. it was one of the first podcast directories it was before apple came out with podcasts Mm -hmm. and if you wanted to find a podcast to listen to this is when you had ipods not iphones you would come to my website find a podcast search it in there just like you do on itunes and hook up your iphone your ipod and download overnight you know so you had it the next morning that's the site that was listed in time magazine as 50 coolest websites but i started doing this one thing with me, I don't mind jumping in right away. I don't have to do a lot of studying and figuring out. I just start doing stuff. And so that was my po- entry into podcasting was I saw it. I said, interesting. So doing a podcast was easier than building a podcast directory and quicker. But mm-hmm. I think I think I started my podcast in December of 2004. And by February, I had a podcast of 2005. I had a podcast directory out. Uh, I still remember when I came home to my wife and I said, oh my gosh, we just got our 50th podcast on the directory today. Uh-huh. You know, because I thought that was so exciting. We're, we're going to hit 100 <laughs> soon. You know? But uh, yeah, I just, I, I did that as part of a spoke. That was only started as a spoke. I guess spoke to which business? Uh, to the softball business. Because my first mm-hmm. podcast was sportspodcast.com. I think I still have the mm-hmm. domain. Actually, because mm-hmm. I was going to move in there, I think if you name a sport, Mm-hmm. There may be some I don't have, but I think for the most part, if you name a sport and use the word podcast.com or podcast, like football, well, I sold football, but like baseballpodcast.com or baseball podcast, if you name a sport, volleyball, football, whatever, I own the domain. So I've got a, back then you could get any domain you want. So I was just buying the heck out of them. <laughs> um, so, but that's how I got into podcasting was strictly to sell softball equipment. And so mm-hmm. I could sponsor the softball store could sponsor the sports podcast, like I said mm. earlier. Mm. Wow. Well, so how did that grow and what did you find out and how did, I guess, podcasting change and what, what was the opportunity that you ended up like taking advantage of? Well, that probably actually changed my whole life, podcasting. Mm. 
Number one, the site grew really big. It was the place to listen to podcasts because there were only two directories that mattered. Other people came along, but they, you know, I think sometimes the original people who get in have a opportunity stronger to stay big than other people do, you know, coming in. And we and the, my competitor, Podcast Sally, both grew at a, a great rate. And there are people I run into to this day who are well-known podcasters who go, you know, if it wasn't for Podcast Pickle, I would have never started podcasting. You changed my life. And that's always nice to hear, but it changed mm-hmm. my life. I actually know many of these people now. I went to an event in Tampa this weekend that was a blockchain slash podcasting event he had a space and he was an old school podcaster so he did two events mm. and actually i spent most of my time in the podcast side of it because i knew literally everybody there you mm. know so but it made many friends it really opened up a lot of doors for me i found podcasting to be a great way to educate myself because with a podcast you could especially in the beginnings you could contact anybody and say mm. i'd like to have you on my show and they go, oh, sure. And you I mean, you could, like, I want to do a show one time. I want to learn about being on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I knew nothing about Amazon, but I wanted to add my softball equipment to Amazon. So I found the guy who had one of the number one Amazon stores. He charged like $2,000 for his book. I mean, he did an mm-hmm. ungodly amount of money on Amazon. So I contacted him and asked him if he'd come on my show. And he said, sure. And we spent two hours talking. And I was just answering, asking all the questions I needed answers to. <laughs> I mean, literally, I was going, how to do this? And when we were through, I like had a road plan to doing mine. And I said, well, this was great. Thanks. He goes, oh, it's great. Let's do it again. And I go, hmm. I will. But I get to the next step, you know? So I found, I found podcasting to be a great way to, to educate yourself. Because so many people were willing to come on my podcast. And they never asked how many listeners I had. They hmm. just were willing. Or they didn't know me. They just knew this guy had a podcast. So mm. I really liked, and I, like I said, we created the conference. Uh, I mm. was at the blog world in Vegas and I ran into a couple of friends of mine that wanted to start a conference. And I guess then again, because of my early getting into podcasting, I knew all the, I knew everybody who was pretty much anybody in podcasting. So mm. we decided to do a conference and I could call all these people on the phone and go, Hey, would your company sponsor my event? Would you buy a table at my event? And we sold out all the tables and sponsorships like in a, a couple of days and did Kickstarter. I think we wanted to raise 10000 in Kickstarter and did twenty maybe. I'm not sure on the mm-hmm. numbers on that. So actually, after the first year, they really had no need for me because mm-hmm. they knew all my bigger contacts. But mm-hmm. the contract was in place. And then I basically felt like it was unfair to them for mm-hmm. me to be getting 25% because I was doing very little at this time. So I, mm-hmm. I backed up my percentage to 15 Mm-hmm. Uh, of the company and gave them split the other part with them because uh, mm-hmm. they were doing more work than I was. And then this big radio business came and bought that a few years right before COVID. I sold it at a great time, mm-hmm. but they bought that right before COVID. So that was perfect timing. I was tickled pink about that. I'm glad I didn't sell the next year. <laughs> <It's been way laughs> down. Well, so you found these opportunities in podcasting, especially like around conferences. And then you got into the conference business as a result of podcasting. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Which conference business are we talking well, about? Well, I mean, just, just the entire conference oh. business, right? Like you got into conferencing or whatever right. the term is. Yeah. Like I said, we started the podcast conference with these friends of mine. Oh. Actually, I had done a podcast meetup with 100 people. Mm. And these two guys I knew heard about that. And they said, wait, would you ever consider doing a 
much bigger conference. I had no idea how big they were thinking. And I said, mm-hmm. well, yeah, but I'm just way too busy to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. I really was. I had a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, how about if you had help? I said, sure. And he goes, I'll be back. And he came back in later with another guy who was one of the founders and said, we're willing to do it for you. And then I had a guy who had helped me. This is kind of, we agreed to do it. We would start this conference and all three of us would own a third. And I called him back the next day and said, hey, I got to back out of this conference. I really can't do this. And they were all mm-hmm. like, what, what? Uh-huh. And because I had all the contacts, I was really important uh-huh. for them at that point. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, my friend Mitch, he helped me at my meetup, you know, put that together. Uh-huh. It wouldn't be fair for me to move into this without bringing Mitch with me because uh-huh. he was a key part of it. And they said, well, let's just do this four ways then. I said, uh-huh. well, okay, if Mitch can come in, I'll do it. And they brought in Mitch and he's told me that was the best thing that ever happened to him in his life, which I'm happy he paid off his house and you know, mm-hmm. uh, now he does a lot of traveling more than he had to when he had to work hard. So I'm glad to hear that. But that they turned it into in Orlando the year before COVID, we had 3,500 people. So mm. they turned it into a huge conference. And mm. I just was kind of like the face of it really for the most part. Mm. I didn't actually do that much work. So that's why I gave it back. Mm. But that's when I kind of t- got into the conferencing business and I sold that conference. Uh, they approached someone approached us about buying it. And uh, the people the, that were my other two sponsors came to me and said, Hey, we got this opportunity. Uh, he wants 51% of the conference and us two don't want to share all of ours, but we're going to sell some of ours. And we thought maybe you and Mitch, and I said, I don't know about Mitch talk to him. They said, maybe you might want to sell yours to get it up to the, I said, sure. At that price, you can have the whole damn thing. And then the next year COVID hit. So, and they didn't have a conference. So I sold it at a perfect time. But hmm. you know, then in the meantime, or I had already found, I guess by this time, Bitcoin. You mm-hmm. know, and so I was doing Bitcoin meetups, you know, at uh, Central Market, places mm-hmm. like this, trying to spread the word about Bitcoin because I became one of your typical Jehovah Witnesses of Bitcoin. You know, <laughs> I, I believed in it so much. I wanted to share it with other people to help them out. Not that I was going to make money off of them uh, buying Bitcoin, but mm-hmm. I didn't want them missing out. And I kind of mm-hmm. call, I kind of like do a comparison. I think Bitcoiners are a lot like Jehovah Witnesses. Yeah, you know, they mm-hmm. want to spread the word, not because necessarily they think they're going to go to heaven, but mm-hmm. because they want to help other people not miss out on the world and not miss out on the opportunity to go to heaven. So I, that's a bad comparison, Bitcoin and heaven. So, uh, but, <laughs> but I, I think they've got the same thing they're trying to get accomplished. They're trying to help other people. And they mm-hmm. don't really think that getting their neighbor across the street to buy a thousand dollar Bitcoin is going to make Bitcoin go up. Mm-hmm. you know, and help their pocket. But they think it's going to help the neighbor across the street maybe start his road to financial freedom. And so mm-hmm. that's why I, I do that comparison is what they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to help people. So I was out spreading the word uh, about Bitcoin. And I was with my friend, Tony Casillas. We started doing the podcast uh, called The Crypto Cousins. Mm-hmm. And then I said, hey, we should do a conference. We had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we've been <laughs> in Bitcoin like six months. We had mm-hmm. no idea what we were doing. And we were contacting people. I think Safe had just come out with his book. Mm-hmm. And Safe said, hey, I got to go to Detroit. I'm here. If I can come down from Detroit to Dallas or from uh, Canada to Dallas to Detroit, I'll do it. So he agreed and Pierre Richard agrees and Michael Goldstein agrees and these people started doing it. So we've really kind of got, you know, but just by asking people, we've got a lot of other people who want to come down and talk, but we have no place to do the conference mm-hmm. and no one to come to the conference except the speakers. Mm. So we found this place and like a month before the conference, they said, oh, we don't want to do a conference here. 
it was like a warehouse space. So we just lugged mm-hmm. up on that hotel we used to do it at. They had mm-hmm. someone cancel like a month before. So they go, well, mm-hmm. you're lucky. We just had someone cancel. And we're like, oh, mm-hmm. my gosh, this is like meant to be. Mm-hmm. And so we started. And then we were out at night just going to any event we could go to, even giving tickets away. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, most of the tickets were given away just because mm-hmm. we could now have these people come and have 10 people in the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, so we worked our butt off just giving tickets away, trying to get people to be there. We had one sponsor. Luckily, he paid us one and a half Bitcoins. Uh, <laughs> so that was a great deal, which I toddled to this day, my part. So that turned out to be a great deal. And in, in retrospect, even if we only had one, we mm. did great off of that. But we got it done and everybody was happy with it. And then my partner, he was just kind of thinking that, you know, that I don't think there's much future in this. I think we just kind of looked up. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to sponsor without that one person. We wouldn't have made Jack. We would have lost money because, we, like I said, we gave a lot of tickets away. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, my thought on my thought when I did my first conference, the podcasting conference, was, and I had told this to several people, several of the guys, and they didn't necessarily believe this, but I did. I believe that if you do a conference in your first year, you only break even. You mm-hmm. are very successful in a conference. Mm-hmm. I believe that's, mm-hmm. You shouldn't even go, I got to do this conference and I got to make $50,000. You should go. I got this conference. Maybe my costs are fifty thousand, so I got to make fifty thousand to break even. But I don't have to have a net of fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how you start out. But I think that's how you start a lot of your businesses. You mm-hmm. just got to like be making a little bit or breaking even or making a little bit to get by on, and you know it keeps multiplying and multiplying. And that's the way the conference business is to me. Mm-hmm. And now Bitblock Boom's going on its fifth year. Mm-hmm. We're going to Austin this year. Tickets are selling well. Sponsorships are selling off the kazoo. Sponsorships are showing. I mean, every year I've, I've had to hump my rear off trying to get sponsors, you know, because a lot of them I can't have at my thing because, mm. uh, you, you know, we're Bitcoin only. Mm. If you've got a crypto conference, well, you can have all kinds of companies. I mean, you can, yeah, I went to, a, on that subject, I went to a conference last year I was invited to mm-hmm. in Miami to speak about mm-hmm. Bitcoin to like newbies because I'm the Bitcoin boomer. So mm-hmm. actually, they think I'm talking to old people all the time about Bitcoin. I guess mm-hmm. that's just what you assume. <laughs> So uh, I was like, yeah, I'd like to go to Miami and have a free holiday. I'll, I'll come down there. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be like a, a total shit fest. I mm-hmm. mean, they had, but they had like maybe 50 sponsors for their first mm-hmm. conference. I don't know if they had 100 people there, mm-hmm. but they had the sponsors out the door. And so mm-hmm. I walked around and out of all 50 people, there's only one person that could be at BitBlock Boom as a sponsor. You know, Bitcoin Hub, which he did come rented the table, but out of 50 vendors, I'm guessing 50, could have been 40, could have been 60, but I'm just going to say 50. Out of all those vendors, there's one person I could ask to sponsor my event. So that's why I say it's harder to do a Bitcoin-only event because you don't have as wide of a net to cast out sponsors where people who are just making that money, mm-hmm. I mean, they're happy to come. They're just making mm-hmm. that money up. I mean, like, there was some company, as in the elevator, some guy with some company called Sailor or ship something or sail or pirate bay or whatever the hell it was. And I'm like, what in the hell is this? I mean, this sounds like a fucking scam to me, but he had a big old damn booth, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so did a lot of them. So it's harder to do, but it's worked great. So I'm not complaining. It's mm-hmm. worked great this year. I think we've gotten far enough. We've gotten established. We're in Austin now instead of Dallas. People want to get involved with us. We're trying to come up with ideas. I think, uh, you know, I'm going to do uh, Drew over at Unchained Capital gave me a good idea. I think it's a good idea. You know, you have pub crawls. I mm-hmm. want to do a Bitcoin crawl. Get someone mm-hmm. to sponsor a bus, driving around people to different Bitcoin companies. Mm-hmm. And all they got to do is have some beer or wine in their 
something there. And mm-hmm. then we'll bring people by. People can get off the bus, get on the bus, you know, hit all these stops. Sounds like a good idea to me. And maybe people mm-hmm. who support the Bitcoin crawl will find some new employees. Mm-hmm. And maybe the people who are going around drinking will have a good time. And maybe they'll find uh, some place they're interested in working or a company they're interested in using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but, but we'll see if that happens or not. Wow. So you seem to have sort of like a nose for a lot of this stuff. It's just sort of seeing the opportunities that are there and just like the big message that I'm getting out of this is that you really have to work hard if you want to make your idea work. And it's sort of not being afraid to jump in, even if you don't know what you're doing. But once you're jumped in, like really working hard to make it work. I think that's pretty correct. Like I said, I don't jump in. All the things I've started, though, really, I haven't started... I think a lot of people throw a lot of money at something right away. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of things you can do that just require your time and some money thrown in. Mm-hmm. And uh, originally I was starting things while I was working. And if you're working a job, I don't know that you need to quit your job and jump right in. I think you mm-hmm. should start developing and get that business going. And then there'll be a point in time, like with uh, my wife, when we got that blind business going and it was doing so well, I said, hey, one of us needs to quit. We were doing this on the weekends. You know, and we were young kids, so we were renting limos to go out at night. We never thought this shit would end. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we really didn't. We thought this was like going to be like this forever. So I said, one of us needs to quit work and do this full time. Mm-hmm. And she was a school teacher and I was a sales rep for a, a national food corporation. So I said, she goes, I'm not quitting. And of course, she's a school teacher. So she's into security a little more than I would be. And I said, well, hell, I'm quitting. So I went in and gave my notice, two weeks notice, and started working, doing it full time because I knew we were already making more part-time than either one of us was full-time. So, Mm. you know, that's kind of a good way to go, start working it on the side and developing it on the side, you know, in the evenings. But see, I don't think a lot of people want to work all day. I really don't. I don't think a lot of people (laughs) want to work all day and then come home and work all evening because that's putting in a lot of time and that's a proof of work. I mean, it's just Mm. like proof of work, but I don't think a lot of people want to do that. Mm. Yeah, I can spend 10 hours a day on it, but I want to spend, don't want to spend those after working 10 hours a day. You know, so I don't want to be there every Saturday and Sunday working all weekend after mm. working all week. So I don't know. I could be wrong on that. It's just a feeling I get. You know? mm. I think also in today's economy, I, how they can't get people to even work at the store. Do you go to any store and not see a sign on the door? <laughs> I mean, any store, any restaurant, do you go any place and you don't see a sign on the door? So yeah. obviously that's telling us something. People really don't want to work that hard. Because mm. I was always told. And I'm not getting political, but I was always told we needed a lot of people coming to the country to do all the jobs nobody wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Now, no one wants to do any job. So mm-hmm. I guess that's why we have so many coming. Mm. <laughs> well, so all right, we've talked a lot about your previous businesses and stuff, and, and obviously you're now in Bitcoin. What are some opportunities that you see? What are some things that... Like if you were maybe younger or had more free time or had, you know, more, you know, if, if you were hungrier, I guess you're, you know, you, you've done very well for yourself and you, you don't need to do a lot of this stuff. What are some opportunities that you see that you would maybe encourage some other people that are in this industry to explore and look at and say, hey, you know what, this could be a good business or this could make money? Boy, I think that's a really open question because I think you can do almost anything and if you think about it long enough and figure out a way to relate it and move that into the Bitcoin world, mm. for instance, conferences is one. But then again, mm. there's a guy down in Austin who does a gun event. You mm. know, that's his whole thing is a gun event wrapped around Bitcoin. Then I mm. see there's someone who makes, a, speaking about guns, he makes a thing, the whole a case for your pistol, and he's wrapped it around Bitcoin. 
course, you have people making wallets and things like that. But I think about anything you can think of, if you're really into that hmm. and you're really into Bitcoin, you're going to be able to see a way to bring that those two things together. But hmm. 3D printing now, oh, my gosh. Actually, if I had the time, I'd like to learn 3D printing hmm. and bring that into the world of Bitcoin. And there are people doing that, doing that already. And I think that's a huge market. So, and it, it's not really an expensive market to get into. You got to buy a computer and a mm-hmm. printer, but everybody's got a computer. And I don't think those printers can be, I haven't checked the price, but they can't be more than a thousand or so. Oh, say. it's like less, so, less um, than 500. Yeah. It's yeah. very cheap. Yeah. So that's where you would go is sort of like look for an intersection between Bitcoin and one of these other industries that are kind of I always say, I always, here's what I've always told people because Really, it's kind of mm-hmm. funny. Everything I've ever done, with the exception of this business, Bitcoin mm-hmm. business, that's what I, I say I do. That's all I do all day is stuff relating to Bitcoin. But when I started in the e-commerce, when I started in the podcasting, people always came up to me when I first started and go, wow, I would like to do that. What should I do one about? What should I start a st- e-commerce site about? What should I do a podcast about? And I've always said the same thing, which I would say to this talking with you too. Mm-hmm. I think people should find something they're passionate about mm-hmm. and wrap their business around that i'm not i've never been one for saying hey here's this thing i know nothing about i'm I'm gonna start a business i usually became kind of passionate about it before i started the business because Mm -hmm. really here's the real deal i don't care what it is i don't care what you do in life once you do it 10 years it's work Mm -hmm. it really is so if you're Mm -hmm. passionate about it when you start it like i was in softball coaching my kids if you're passionate about it what that lasted from 2000 to this year, 21 years. When 21 years go by, yeah, maybe you don't like it and you're not passionate about it as much, but you don't hate it. Mm. Because if you just are doing it to do it, 20 years later, you pretty much hate it. You you (laughs) might like the income, but it's really work. You go, oh, I hate this work. I hate this job. (laughs) You know, so you really get to hate it. So, Mm. which happened to me in the mini buy wallpaper business. Oh Mm. man, 20 years later, I hated that business. I hated mm. people coming in the store with a pillow. This little old lady coming in going, I need to find some wallpaper that matches this pillow. I just hated it. I was so excited mm. the softball business took off. I told my wife, I said, here's the deal. You either got to start running this wallpaper store or we're closing it. Because mm-hmm. I'm going to go do the softball store. <laughs> and I can't do both. So that's mm. why she started doing the softball, I mean, the wallpaper store full time. She goes, well, we can't throw all that money away. It's just doing too much business. So we got to do one or the other. I'm not doing both. And so mm. I hated that business, even though it became really big. Mm. The softball business, I never hated. I just didn't, mm. I wasn't passionate about it anymore. So that's always mm. been my advice. If you're going to do something, find something you're passionate about or you really like and, and turn that into a bit. And I think it's easier to spend your extra time on something you're passionate about already. Mm. If you're passionate about it, maybe you don't mind putting that four hours of work when you get home on it, you know, Mm. or if you're just doing it to like, I can turn this, make some money. And that's all I'm looking for is the cash. Then you're really, you know, you're motivated by the cash, but that's not real true long-term motivation. Because once you get the cash, you don't want to do it anymore because you don't (laughs) like it to begin with. You never did. Right, right, right. And then also, Jimmy, a lot of people start businesses with the plan to sell the business. Mm. which I never have. I mean, I just sold my first business this year and I gave the other one away. So mm. I'm not very good at, and I sold my podcasting conference. So I'll take that back. But I mean, as mm-hmm. far as uh, main business, I've really never been any good at selling businesses. I just always mm-hmm. kept them and kept them and kept them. 
But I guess if your plan is to do a business and you can make it big enough in five years to sell, you know, more power to you. I'm just not good at that. Mm. Yeah. And that sort of like sort of gives you a very different motivation. It's uh, it's growing it so somebody else will like it instead of growing it so that you can live with it, which is a very different thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, that's just not what I'm good at. So mm. but a lot of people are good at that. So, yeah, I'm just. I'm just basically an old guy sitting here at a table telling you what's happened to me and how I can do things. There are many things. I wish I could have started businesses and had them five years and sold them for a big turn, you know, and mm-hmm. started another one. Because I've started a lot of them. It seems like a lot of little ones and things, but mm-hmm. I've never been any good at that part of it. So everybody's mm-hmm. got their strong points and weak points. Mm. Wow. So this is hopefully like inspiring for a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, because I think a lot of them are you know, doing maybe a traditional fiat job of some kind, and they're they're looking to get into the Bitcoin business. And, you know, they're almost always looking for like a role at a company or something like that. And I think what you're saying is there are opportunities to do something in Bitcoin. You just have to be looking out for it. And you, it could totally be a side hustle that turns into a main one, but yeah, I, you need to be willing to work. And I think a lot of people, turn, I think that's really pretty common. Mm. Uh, is for a side hustle to become your big deal. I mean, I think that's mm. super common. That's probably more common than anything else as far as entrepreneurs go. Is And more successful, they start doing it because they see a little hustle there. Next thing you know, they built something and it's like, if you build it, he will come. All of a sudden you build mm. it and all these people are coming to buy your product or eat your food if you started a small restaurant or whatever it is, or buy your subscriptions if you've got a video or a podcast or a newsletter. I mean, if you're passionate about it, it usually works because you don't mind putting in the time because you're passionate about it. Mm. You know, it's just not a grind. Mm. Mm. Wow. Very interesting. Uh, hopefully that inspires many of you listening on this to go and start something because I think Gary's got a lot of wisdom. He's done a lot of different things and he certainly tried a lot of different things and he's found some formulas that work and yeah, maybe you can get that. So Gary, where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Yeah, I'm Gary Leland about everywhere. I think except for Instagram, mm-hmm. Gary underscore Leland. But mm-hmm. you just, there was a time I used to say, if you search Gary Leland on the internet, I was the first 10 pages on Google, but now I don't think I am. I think, now, I think now a lot of those are people who are making like they're me. <laughs> you know, like they, I had one the other day. It was really the most clever one I've seen. It was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm like on Twitter, I'm Gary Leland, but this guy was Gary instead of L E L, he was L E capital I. And yeah, it was really yeah. a pretty good one. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm just, I'm just so concerned. People are going to get scammed by these people. And then I'm going to be somewhere someday and someone's going to come up and give me a hard time going, Hey, where's my $50,000? What are you talking about? I don't even know who you are. Because usually people know I wouldn't ask him, how are your crypto investments? Uh-huh. And he messaged me and go, is this you? And I go, no, that's how I find out about the scams. But I, you can just find me at Gary Leland or on Twitter is where I'm at most of the time, to be honest with you. Just Gary Leland on Twitter. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, I enjoyed it, Jimmy. Thanks for asking me to come on. Yeah. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited about what they are building. If you need multi-sig collaborative custody or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Gary can be found at @GaryLeland on Twitter and at bitblockboom.com. Until next time, 
Fiat, the Linda asked.